talking about Thomas a little bit today, but before we get into that, I want to go back before our time, but after Thomas's time, about the year 386 A.D. St. Augustine was, uh, was about 30 years old. He was, a, he was a teacher of philosophy and rhetoric at this point, and he had studied uh, Greek philosophy, and it really opened up his mind to higher things. He was searching for peace, and he was searching for truth, and he mentions in his writing, Confessions, he mentions that starting about the age of 19, he had this desire for more, this desire for, for this knowledge that he was gaining to bring him to some kind of real sense of peace and to know spiritual truth. And he had felt like he had been beating his head against the wall. At this point, by the year 386, it had been for 11 years, seeking after God, seeking after truth and philosophy. He, he had gone, by this point, he, he writes to... Uh, to visit uh, many of the bishops, the, the popular speakers of the day, and go and have conversations with them when, when he could, just searching for something that was going to unlock that next little bit so he could walk through the door into truth. He, he writes that he was, uh, he was in a garden in Milan, I think it was. He was in a garden with a friend of his, and they were reading uh, the writings of Paul, and Paul's letter to the Romans specifically. And he just became so frustrated that he wasn't, it wasn't connecting, he wasn't getting through. And so he just, he fell down on the ground and he just began to cry out to God, like, where are you? What's going on? How come I can't reach you? And in Confessions, he writes that while he was, while he was studying those letters, crying out to God, he reports that he felt a voice speaking inside of him. And that voice said, take up and read, take up and read. And so he didn't even grab his copy of the letter of Paul to the Romans. He grabbed the one off of his friend's lap and he just reached for it and he opened it up to wherever it happened to be laying. And it, and it was on Romans 13, 13 through 14. And so Augustine wrote in, in, uh, in Confessions, and Romans 13 is, is not necessarily something that you think of as like the, the huge evangelist evangelism scripture. It's like put away those things and instead seek God is basically what that's about. But he read it. And in confessions, he wrote later about it and said, I had neither desire nor need to read farther. As I finished the sentence, as though the light of peace had been poured into my heart, all the shadows of doubt dispersed. He had an encounter with God through the word. And it didn't even matter specifically what word it was. It was the spirit of God in that word that broke through all of the strivings. It broke through all of the, the study, all, all of the things that he couldn't get in his own mind. He opened it up at the prompting of the Lord, take up and read. And he opened it up and he, the first scripture that he saw there unlocked the door. And he wrote, as though the light of peace had been poured into my heart, all the shadows of doubt dispersed. And the reason I go back to this is because that phrase, shadow of a doubt, the shadows of doubt, the reason we use that now is because Augustine first wrote it in this way in Confessions. And since that time, since he sort of introduced this phrase, shadow of a doubt, shadow of a doubt, we've sort of conflated doubt with shadow. This sense of, if we're in doubt, then we're, 
somehow disconnected from God, or if we're in doubt that God is inaccessible, if we're experiencing doubt, then somehow there's some darkness that's upon us, and it's something that we should fear, that we should be ashamed of, something that we should run from. So we're going to talk about that a little bit today. Uh, And I don't think we can talk about doubt unless we talk about Thomas, because he is the central figure in the Bible with whom doubt has been uh, mostly associated. And so how do we get there? We're going to go here through John 20, 19 through 27. A lot of scripture to read today, y'all, so take a deep breath. Here we go. (laughs) On the evening of that first day of the week, when the disciples were together with the doors locked for fear of the Jewish leaders, Jesus came and stood among them and said, peace be with you. Context. This is post-resurrection. And the disciples are very afraid because if Jesus can die as their leader, and if I haven't seen with my eyes yet the thing that he promised, that he was going to be resurrected, then I may have just believed something that wasn't true, and now I've got no covering. And if he can die for his stance, then I can die for standing with him. And so they are locked in a room. The disciple, except for Thomas, where was he? Like, what, did they not invite him? I don't know. So he was locked. They were all locked in a room together for fear of the Jewish leaders. And then Jesus came and stood among them. How did he get in the room? He's Jesus. He found a way. And he says, peace be with you. After he said this, he showed them his hands and his side. The disciples were overjoyed when they saw the Lord. And again, Jesus said, peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, I'm sending you. And with that, he breathed on them. And he said, receive the Holy Spirit, which is reminiscent of God breathing on the dirt and creating life in Adam, creating new life, right? So Jesus is creating new life in them, a new expression of, of, of walking with him. Verse 20, 23, if you forgive anyone's sins, their sins are forgiven. If you do not forgive them, they are not forgiven. Now, Thomas, also known as Didymus, one of the 12, was not with the disciples when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, we've seen the Lord. But he said to them, unless I see the nail marks in his hands and put my finger where the nails were and put my hand into his side, I will not believe. A week later, his disciples were in the house again. And Thomas was with them. And though the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, peace be with you. And then he looked at Thomas and he said to Thomas, put your finger here. See my hands. Reach out your hand and put it into my side. Stop doubting and believe. And that's the scripture where we get this doubting Thomas. And where we get this sense of shame if we're not reading it through and thinking about it and reading it from the perspective of knowing who God is and what his heart is, right? If we're, if we're reading it through, uh, through the wrong lens, then we can feel like, well, exhibiting doubt, asking for proof, asking f- for just a little bit something to give me more confidence in this, uh, that I should be ashamed of that. I, sh- I shouldn't do that. I should have more faith than that. Have you ever beat yourself up because you thought I should have more faith than that? Yeah. Okay, I'm glad I'm not the only one. Thank you for making me feel good. Um, yeah, I, I've, I've been there. I've thought, man, I should have more faith in that. I, God said this, but I, 
I just don't see how that's going to happen. So if that's ever happened to you, and if you've walked with God for more than about 36 hours, it's probably happened to you. God said this, but I'm looking around, and I just don't see how that's going to happen, right? Exhibiting doubt has become, unfortunately, a mark of shame for us. It's something to fear or something to hide from uh, or, or something that we want to put aside because we're trying to preserve our Christian persona of someone who has more faith than that. I don't doubt. I'm strong in the Lord. So we want to go back to Thomas and show how someone like him who's strong in the Lord can also have doubts and how that's okay. I know that's not shocking to anyone, but that's okay. So we're going to reframe Thomas as a person of great faith here, and here's how we're going to do it. We're going to show first how we were introduced to Thomas in the book of Matthew. Deep breath. Matthew 10, 1 through 8. Jesus called his 12 disciples to him, and he gave them authority to drive out impure spirits and to heal every disease and sickness. These are the names of the 12 apostles. First, Simon, who's called Peter, his brother Andrew, James, the son of Zebedee, my parents really messed up. I really wanted to be named Zebedee. That would have been so cool. Your nickname could be Z. It would be so awesome. His brother John, Philip and Bartholomew, Thomas, and Matthew, the tax collector of all people, James, son of Alphaeus, and Thaddeus, Simon the Zealot, and Judas Iscariot who betrayed him. These 12 Jesus sent out with the following instructions. Now, these are not the instructions you give to someone who you need to be careful of because they doubt too much, right? He said, don't go among the Gentiles or enter any town of the Samaritans. Go rather to the lost sheep of Israel. And as you go, proclaim this message. The kingdom of heaven has come near. Heal the sick, raise the dead, cleanse those who have leprosy, drive out demons. Freely you have received, so freely give. Now in answering this call from Jesus, all the disciples, Thomas included, being obedient to that, show themselves to be people not who are governed by doubt, but people who are governed by great faith. People who can hear, hey, go drive out demons. And they say, all right, sounds good. And they go. People who hear Jesus say, go heal the sick. And like, all right. He said, I can do it. I guess let's try that. Let's, let's go for it. This, we're not introduced to Thomas or any of the disciples as people who are governed and ruled by doubt. So there's something here that we're missing when we put all of the doubt sort of upon this one character. So they place their hope and their trust in Jesus. They're willing to act in obedience and minister hope and life in his name. Now, Thomas is very often referred to as a skeptic. Have you ever heard that? Thomas, Thomas was just skeptical. But I'm going to show you, as an English teacher who gets really nerdy about definitions, I'm going to show you I don't think that's exactly accurate. Okay, so a skeptic is a person who is inclined to question or doubt accepted opinions. So let's think about walking with Jesus this closely in that day, all right? No one had ever spoken like him before. Everybody who would hear him would say that. Man, no one's talked like this before. We've never heard this kind of message. Uh, he often taught in parables, which seemed like riddles a lot. Uh, his ministry and his ways always kind of ran opposite of the way that the religious leaders and the culture of the day thought that it should run. He was always doing things that the religious leaders of the time were saying, what is he doing? Why is he doing it that way? That doesn't make any sense. 
Following Jesus came with the possibility of uh, like very real personal danger, right? So when we hear that a skeptic is somebody who questions like accepted opinions, I don't think there's anything about following Jesus that involves accepted opinions of that time. Following Jesus is very radical. He's not saying, Thomas, any of the disciples aren't saying, well, you know, everybody else says this, so I'm questioning that. Jesus was doing everything different. So Thomas is less of a skeptic. Hopefully this makes us feel better because skeptic, if we identify with Thomas in any way in in this regard, then sometimes feeling like a skeptic makes us feel like we're bad. I would define Thomas this way. He's a realist. Here's that definition. A realist is a person who accepts a situation as it is and is prepared to deal with it accordingly. A person who takes a look at it, logic and reason, say, well, I should do this because that's what this situation demands and I'm ready to do that. Let's take a look at a couple of scriptures to show us this. John 11, 6 through 8, and then 14 through 16. When he heard that Lazarus was sick, Jesus stayed where he was two more days. And then he said to his disciples, let's go back to Judea. But Rabbi, they said, a short while ago, the Jews there tried to stone you and you're going back? So he told them plainly, Lazarus is dead. And for your sake, I'm glad I wasn't there so that you may believe, but let us go to him. So they're saying, Jesus, you can't go back there. You're going to die. And Jesus is saying, well, I'm going back there. And so Thomas says, verse 16, Then Thomas said to the rest of the disciples, well, let us also go, that we may die with him. (laughs) That's a realist. That's a realist. That's somebody who's saying, okay, well, I hate to point out the obvious to the rest of you guys, but number one, he's probably going to die. They got it out for him there. Number two, I accept that, and I'm going to deal with this accordingly. I've committed to following him. I'm going to follow him to the end. Wow. That's amazing. It's amazing. He accepts the situation. He's prepared to deal with it. And he says, okay, let's go. Let's go die with him. Moving a little bit uh, into a little bit of a different area. This is Jesus just talking with the disciples alone. And he's talking about his father's house, which I think some of the disciples thought was maybe in another neighborhood in Judea. Because the way they talk about it. John 14, 1 through 6. Do not let your hearts be troubled. You believe in God, so believe also in me. My Father's house has many rooms. If that were not so, would I have told you that I am going there to prepare a place for you? And if I go and I prepare a place for you, I will come back and I'll take you to be with me, that you may also be where I am. You know the way to the place where I'm going. And Thomas, the realist, says, Lord, we don't know where you're going. So how can we know the way? He's just asking for some clarification. He doesn't want to go follow Jesus without knowing. And so he's just asking for more information. He's that kid in class who when the teacher says something, they raise their hand and everybody else goes, oh my gosh. (laughs) This guy. So Jesus says, you know the way where I'm going. And Thomas says, actually, I don't. Could you explain it to me in a way that I... Explain it to me like I'm five, Jesus. Explain it to me like I'm five. So Jesus answers, well, I am the way. You know me. 
I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you really know me, you will know my Father as well. From now on, you do know him. You have seen him. So he asked for clarification, and Jesus explains. Like, off to the side, Philip immediately after says, well, why don't you just show us the Father? So Philip doesn't get it either, right? <laughs> Philip doesn't understand, right? But Thomas is willing to go first and bite that bullet and admit that he needs some clarification. Jesus, this is what I need to know in order to really be confident in moving forward. I want to, please help me. Please help me. Thomas is a person of faith, and he's a realist. He believes, but he also has doubts. And what I want to express to you this morning is that that's okay. It's okay to have doubts, to be a person of faith, but to be a realist and to want God to show you in a way that helps you follow him better. That's okay. It puts Thomas, and it puts us, in some pretty good spiritual company, honestly. So when we think about people who doubt in the Bible, we've got Abraham, who doubted that God could give them a son, right? Argued with God about it. We have Moses, who doubted that God could use him to speak to Pharaoh. Doubted a bunch of times, so, so much that he kept saying, oh, I can't talk, I can't talk, I can't talk. Eventually, God just had to tell him, this is scripture, who made your mouth? <laughs> he doubted God so much that God just had to call him out and say, who made your mouth? and just bring him back in line. David doubted that God was with him. Psalm 22, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? When Saul was pursuing him. And then later on, when his son Absalom was pursuing him, David questioned whether God was with him at all. And Mary, right at the start, this little tinge of doubt, but how's that gonna be possible, God, for me to be pregnant? I don't get that. So it puts Thomas in really good company. And it makes him really relatable because it puts us in that same company as well. Uh, real quick, I gotta, gotta show you something here. In being a person of faith who also is able to take their doubts to God, he's also like the other disciples. In the book of John, we see Jesus appearing in that room in this way. John 20, 19 through 20. We read this already, we'll go back to it. On the evening of that first day of the week, when the disciples were together, with the doors locked for fear of the Jewish leaders, Jesus came and stood among them and said, peace be with you. After he said this, he showed them his hands and his side. The disciples were overjoyed when they saw the Lord. Which makes it seem like, oh, the other, the other guys, uh, they got it right away. They were just overjoyed as soon as Jesus walked in the room. Luke has a different take on it. And if we read the Gospel of Luke, we see a little bit of a different picture. Luke 24, 36 through 41. While they were still talking about this, Jesus himself stood among them and said to them, peace be with you. They were startled and frightened, thinking that they saw a ghost, doubting that it was really Jesus. And he said to them, why are you troubled? And why do doubts rise in your minds? Look at my hands and my feet. It is I myself. Touch me and see. A ghost does not have flesh and bones, as you see I have. And when he had said this, he showed them his hands and feet. And while they still didn't believe it because of joy and amazement, he asked them, do you have anything to eat? Which is awesome and the sign of life, right? Do you have anything? Hey, guys, I'm hungry. You're still working through this. I'm going to go get something to eat while you guys work through this. 
So Thomas wasn't the only one whose life experiment and or life experience and, and whose disappointment at maybe maybe being wrong about Jesus and, and whose frustration over losing his Lord and his master. He wasn't the only one who let that kindle some doubt about what it was that they were really doing here. All the disciples felt it. And you see in the, in the passage from Luke, when the disciples felt it in that room, Jesus came to them. He spoke peace to them. He invited them to experience him. And this makes the passage in John look very different. John 20, 25 through 27. So the other disciples told Thomas, we have seen the Lord. But Thomas said to, the, said to him, said to them, unless I see the nail marks in his hands and put my finger where the nails were and put my hand into his side, I will not believe. A week later, his disciples were in the house again, and Thomas was with them. Though the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, peace be with you. And then he said to Thomas, put your finger here. Now, Jesus wasn't a part of that conversation that Thomas had with the other disciples. And he was telling them, guys, you had this experience, but I can't base my faith off your experience. Unless I see it, I'm not going to believe it. I'm not going to put all of my faith in it. Christ is my firm foundation, the rock on which I stand. Your testimony is not. So unless I see it, I'm not going to believe. I'm not going there. And not hearing that conversation, Jesus appears and looks at Thomas specifically and says, put your finger here. See my hands. Reach out your hand and put it into my side. Stop doubting and believe. And Thomas responds to him, my Lord and my God. And then Jesus told him, because you have seen me, you believed. So blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. A couple of really important things here. Thomas knew that no one but Jesus could overcome his fears. No one but Jesus could overcome the doubts that he was having. No one but Jesus was going to be able to take him from this place of confusion and bring him into a place of clarity. Nobody but Jesus. He couldn't rely on the other disciples' testimonies to do it. He needed to experience Jesus for himself. And so Jesus gives him that, and he doesn't rebuke him. He says, you asked for this, I'm going to give you what you need to follow me. I'm not angry with you. I'm not scared that you're doubting. I'm just going to tell you, here I am. I'm presenting myself to you in a way that you need so that you can stop doubting and you can believe. And when he comes, this is, so, this is why this is a resurrection story. Because we heap all of this stuff, all of this doubt, all of this like uh, speculation on this one uh, figure in the Bible. But he looks at Jesus and he says, my Lord and my God. And that's super important. When he says that, he becomes the very first person in Scripture to acknowledge and express out loud the divinity of Jesus. None of the other disciples had done it. No one else had expressed that out loud until Thomas. This is a tremendous resurrection story. It's actually, in a weird way, it's actually the doubt that he had that led to the encounter that he had, which would lead to the confession that he makes. 
it all started with that little, God, I need one, I just need one more thing. Can you help me with this? So in 20, verse 20, 29, he, uh, chapter 20, verse 29, Jesus said, because you have seen me and believed, blessed are those who have not seen and yet believed. And that's kind of where, where we come in. Remember Jesus' prayer in the garden in John 17 when he said, my prayer is not just for my disciples, but I pray also for those who will believe me through their message. That's us. Those who have not seen and yet believe. There's a blessing for us in that. There's a blessing for us. And we, we still go through those same doubts. We still have to ask God, can you just show me in a way that makes sense to me? And just as he approached in, the disciples in, in John chapter 20, he comes to us in the way that we need to be able to follow him in the way that he's asking. Resurrection people, which is, which is what we are. We're people who live on the power of the resurrection of Jesus. He empowers our lives. He empowers us to, to go and move forward in a life that's made all new because he died and he rose again. And as resurrection people, it's okay for us to have a doubt. But here's three, I, I feel like I'm already over time, but three, three quick, you know part of the reason I say that is so you guys will give me permission to just keep talking longer. Uh, I'm just kidding. <laughs> I'm just kidding. Um, three quick takeaways from this. As resurrection people, it's okay for us to pursue our doubts because when we pursue them, that's when we find Jesus, right? So three things that we learned from this here, three takeaways. Number one, you can't build your faith in Jesus on someone else's experience. We learned that in the book of John, John 20, when Thomas says, that's fine for you guys. I wasn't there. I want to see that for myself. He's not asking for something they didn't get. Luke reports that Jesus did the same thing with them, the hands and the side. He's saying, I, I'm not asking for anything that Jesus isn't willing to give to anybody else, but I want to see it for myself. I want to experience that. And, and Jesus isn't afraid of or angry about any of our doubts or any of our questions. What he went through for us should show us that he came to reconcile us to the Father no matter what it takes. Whatever it takes, he's there for us. Uh, and, so, and so we can ask Jesus to show us who he is in a way that will help us to overcome any doubts that we're having right now. Uh, Hebrews 4.16 speaks to this. Let us then approach God's throne of grace with confidence so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. So we can't base our experience... We can't base our, our faith on someone else's experience with Jesus. It has to be our own. Second thing, doubt is not the opposite of faith. We think about it that way sometimes. We think, oh, well, if I'm, not, if, 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 if I'm doubting something, then clearly I'm not a person of faith. Doubt isn't the opposite of faith. Doubt is an aspect of our faith. If there were no doubt there would be no reason for faith. If we didn't have a choice, if God didn't give us our free will, if he didn't give us a mind that can operate and, and, and consider possibilities, and then there would be no reason to trust him. There would be no reason for faith. 
Doubt is not the opposite of faith. Doubt is an aspect of it. The kingdom of God operates differently from the kingdoms of the world. And doubt is that wrestling match between our mind and our heart. Between our mind and our spirit. Without that wrestling match, it's impossible to choose faith. So don't run from it. Embrace it. Lean into it. John 7, 17 says, anyone who chooses to do the will of God will find out whether my teaching comes from God or whether I speak on my own. Anyone who chooses. And if we've never had the temptation to choose something different, then we never really chose it in the first place. Last thing, and this is something that I think we fear at times. We don't get separated from Jesus because we have our doubts. We get separated from Jesus because we hide our doubts. Okay. One thing I love about Thomas is that if he had a question, he wasn't going to keep it silent. He wasn't going to just pretend like, oh, yeah, Jesus, that makes total sense to me. That's great. And then harbor something inside that he wasn't willing to confess to the Lord. That's where we get into trouble. We need to be honest about our doubts and take them to God. We need to confess them to Jesus because he said, I am your ever-present help in times of trouble. When we hide our doubts, we choose not to express them. Usually it's because of fear. It's because of pride, because we don't want to be seen as a person who has doubts. It's all this stuff that, if we're really honest, was also the motivation of the Pharisees. They weren't willing to be wrong. They weren't willing to, to, to express that they didn't know it all. And Jesus says this about them, Matthew 15, 7, 7 through 9, you hypocrites, Isaiah was right when he prophesied about you. These people honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. They worship me in vain. Their teachings are merely human rules. Instead, Jesus is asking us to respond to the Father. Like, you remember in Mark 9, the man whose son was possessed by demons? And Jesus says, okay, well, do, do you believe? And he says to Jesus, I do believe, but help me overcome my unbelief. See, it's an aspect of our faith. Jesus, I believe you, but there's something in here that's making it hard for me to fully commit. Help my unbelief, but I believe, right? In our doubts, Jesus is here, right, in, right next to us. And like the disciples in the locked room, he's ready to meet with us and say, peace be with you. Reach out your hand. Stop doubting and believe. 